longer I commune with the Word of God and the older I get in my faith, more mature I get in my faith, uh, I'm becoming more and more and more convinced that God is the most powerful advocate for the fair treatment of women. I grew up in a tradition that was definitely skewed towards all-male leadership and women being quiet and in subjection. And the more I read the Scripture, I've been saved now 48 years. The more I read the Scripture and the more I commune with God, the more convinced I am that the Bible is not prescribing that brokenness. The Bible is actually telling a very radically different story where God is engaging with people's lives and He is saying, you're doing this all wrong. This is not what I created in the beginning. You just keep perpetuating the curse, perpetuating brokenness. We are born-again people who have been buried in the likeness of His death and raised to walk Yeah, a new life, a resurrected life. We're supposed to be living differently and modeling differently than the broken world is modeling. The way we say it at Cornerstone is we're supposed to be reversing the curse, not keeping the curse going. And whenever we encounter the curse of sin and all that it does to humanity and society and to planet Earth, God's people should be advocating to reverse the curse. We shouldn't be trashing the planet. This is your home. Take care of it. You know? You shouldn't be trashing your body. Take care of it. It's your home. You live in there. You may live longer than you expected to. Take care of it. Now, with, with, with this series of messages, listen, I, I have just decided something snapped in me maybe about five years ago or more And I have just decided that I'm going to follow God's lead and be a voice for women getting involved with the mission of Christ on every level. I am going to be an advocate for every one of God's sons and daughters getting on the mission of Jesus Christ. I often read as I'm reading through uh, scholarly works written by theologians. Well, the women didn't do this and the women do that. Listen, you didn't let them have an education. No wonder they have questions. Answer their questions. Give the women access to education. And watch how brilliantly God created their minds. Let them use their talents and watch how the body of Christ could flourish. Our wiring and DNA here at Cornerstone is that we're going to give every resource we have, not only to the men, but also to our women and to our daughters. And we're going to see what a church would look like about 20 years from now, where every woman is treated equal as a man and given every resource and opportunity a man has, every chance to be discipled, every chance to use her gifts, Let's see what a church will look like another generation from now. We'll see if it looks better or worse. And if it looks worse, I won't be here anymore. Y'all take it back into bondage, okay? Uh, And say, that was a terrible mistake the pastor made. And we want to go back to the good old days, okay? You have that liberty in the next generation to do that. 
But for now, I want to advocate for the opposite because I already grew up in the other thing. And so did you. And we want to see what a different experiment would look like when we followed a different viewpoint from the Word of God. Now, you may have been told that you're of inferior status. Uh, You may have even faced restricted opportunities in your past church experiences. You may have even been told that because you're a woman, you're less valuable to God. That old argument, uh, Jeremy will clear this up in a few weeks when he preaches on Deborah. That old argument that God can only use a woman if there's not a man around. Oh, well, there was a man around. Just the woman was the best man for the job. Listen, I'd love to go preach a whole sermon to you. I don't know if time will allow on Huldah. Huldah's a prophetess in the Old Testament. And when they found the missing law of God, the king said, go get the best theologian we've got to explain what these books of Moses mean. They went and found Huldah, the prophetess, and she taught the king and his cabinet what the word of God said. You say, well, there wasn't a good male prophet around. You've got to be kidding. Jeremiah's around, who wrote one of the longest books in your Bible. But Jeremiah wasn't the best man for the job. Huldah was the best man, woman, for the job. And so Huldah explained the word of God to the king and the cabinet and reinstituted a lot of things that had stopped happening. So what I want this morning is I'm not trying to be a radical and, you know, in all of this, not just trying to be sensational. We're actually trying to correct some brokenness in the church that we see. Uh, And this is the way we live around here. And if you're already a cornerstone person, nothing we're going to say in the next few weeks will be a shock to you because you're already engaged in ministry here. But I want you to be encouraged that as we go through the Bible, we're going to show you that God uses women in wonderful ways in His plan and in His ministry and in His work, and we should in the church as well. I want you to come away from these weeks understanding that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. When God made you a woman... That wasn't an insult. That wasn't a second-class standing he had for you. Uh, That he put you on footing, equal footing with, with all of the men that were made. And you are incredibly valuable to the kingdom of God. When Jesus began his ministry... Uh, His first sermon is is famous. He's quoting from the Old Testament. Obviously, that's their only Bible. And he went up into his hometown of Nazareth. I'm going to read for you what Jesus' first sermonic words are in the New Testament. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. He went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. By the way, that should be your custom too. Now, we don't have a synagogue and we don't meet on Saturday. But we have a church and we meet on Sunday. And I want to just challenge you. COVID really shook things up for the New Testament church in America. Well, all over the world, actually. And uh, in America still, most churches are running 50% of their pre-COVID uh, in-person attendance. Now, there's, there, you say, how do you explain that? Everybody's at home right now. That's how you explain it. I'm not saying they're bad people. They're believers. They're wonderful. Many of you are watching Come and assemble with the church and get back into your habits before we lose an entire generation of people who no longer worship as a church, okay? Jesus' custom was, it's time to worship. He went up to worship with his people, and uh, as was his custom, he stood up to read. Verse 18, and here's what he read from the Old Testament. He chose these as his first sermon, these words. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. And recovery of sight 
for the blind. God has called me to set the oppressed free. Now, when Jesus is preaching this sermon, you should be sitting back hearing these words saying, who's he talking about? Who, who are these oppressed people that Jesus has come to set free? After he read this text and began this sermon from the Old Testament, they rolled it up and he set the Bible down. He said, this day, these words are fulfilled in your ears. The Messiah is here and this is my mission. I have come to help the poor, set the captives free, to, to deal with the oppressed, to give sight to the blind. Who are these captives that Jesus is talking about and who is holding them? Is Jesus speaking of spiritual freedom that he's going to give? Or of social freedom that he's going to give? The answer is yes. I'm kind of like one of those Old Testament questions now. Samson a good guy or a bad guy? Exactly. Exactly. Did Jesus come to set us free spiritually or socially? Exactly. All of the above is the answer. He came to give you life and life more abundantly, and it incorporates it all. Jesus wants you set free from your sins. I think that's very obvious this morning in the house of God. He died for your sins on the cross. He substituted His life in your place, and the wrath of God fell upon Him because of sin. He paid your penalty for sin. He was buried, and He rose again to be your Savior. Now, we know that. He came to set us free from our sins. But now stay with me. It was the life of Christ and the teachings of Christ that ultimately dismantled patriarchy. Now I've been speaking for five weeks on patriarchy and all of our people, you know what this is. It's a male rule of society. I've been preaching from the Old Testament. Jesus dismantled patriarchy. His teachings did. It was the teachings of Jesus Christ that dismantled primogenitor. This is where you give the firstborn favoritism and a double portion and you pick which kid you like the best and you shower them with blessings. You treat one wife bad and one wife good and make all your kids hate you. That's the Old Testament as you read it. Jesus completely dismantled primogeniture. Jesus' teachings completely dismantled polygamy. Read the Old Testament with open eyes. Now cross over and start reading the book of Acts. Start reading what you're reading. You're going to say, where did polygamy go? Exactly. What happened? Jesus showed up, and through his teachings, it began to teach a different kind of marriage. There's no happy marriages in the Old Testament that you want to model after. There's no great parents in the Old Testament that you say, oh, I want to be just like Jacob. I pray you don't want to be like Jacob. You say, well, I'm going to be just like Abraham and Sarah. God, no. Please, no. Let it not happen. No, we want you to be like Jesus Christ and like the parents of the early church era. That was a completely successful model, something totally different. Remember, it was the enlightenment brought in by Christianity that ultimately gave women equality in our modern society. So, uh, obviously, we're teaching from the Old Testament, so I want to take you all the way back to the Old Testament this morning. I want to give you three vignettes, not one character story, but three Three stories this morning of women, daughters in the Old Testament. And the Bible tells the story of these three, that they were empowered by God in an age when boys were consistently preferred over the girls, and women had no civil rights at all. 
And what the Bible is going to describe to you this morning is running counterculture. It's running against the grain of the ancient cultures, and it's starting slowly to bring about radical change upon planet Earth. Most women were like prisoners in the Old Testament. It'll be very clear to you next week when I preach next week's sermon. Most women were like prisoners in the Old Testament. They were trapped in polygamous marriages and unhappy homes and quite often forced into a marriage with a man they had no love or affection for whatsoever. But something began to happen along the way, and we'll see it in the stories today. The women began to ask forbidden questions. Radical questions. Questions like this. Why can't a woman own land? It's a very radical question, isn't it? Well, I will tell you, in 1400 B.C., it's a radical question. Because you weren't allowed to own land if you were a woman. But the women began to say, but why not? Well, because you're a woman. Yeah, but why not? Well, because you're a woman. Yeah, but why does having male parts instead of female parts make you a better landowner? They begin to ask forbidden questions that you weren't allowed to ask. They, they begin to ask questions like this. Why aren't we being treated with equality? They begin to ask radical questions like, when my parents die, why don't I get an inheritance like my brother? Very radical question, isn't it? You say, no, pastor, those aren't radical. Those are just common sense questions. Yeah, exactly to you who live in a culture that's completely transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ 2,000 years later. You, you see it as a common sense question, but it was a radical question back in the day when it was being asked. I, as a pastor, all of these years now, have constantly heard the voices of women saying, Church, please value me. Church, please value me. Something happened in the founding days of the nation of Israel that mirrors that cry. During the days of Moses, both social matters and religious matters were adjudicated at the house of God. In other words, you didn't have a court system like we would go to downtown and, and go to court here in Tarrant County in Fort Worth. They didn't have a courthouse like that, the tabernacle. The house of God was both the courthouse and the place of worship. And both religious, <clears throat> stay with me, both religious and civil matters were adjudicated at the house of God. I want to read for you. Numbers 27, verse 1. The daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Golid, the son of Maker, the son of Manasseh, belonged to the clans of Manasseh, who is a son of Joseph. And we've already talked about Joseph in our series. So Zelophehad had some daughters. Let me read their names. The names of the daughters were Mala, Noah, which I thought was a man's name, but here she is. This next daughter is quite unfortunate. Hogla, Milka, and Tirza. The daughters came forward and stood before Moses and Eliezer the priest and the leaders and the whole assembly at the entrance of the tent of the meeting. Okay, let me just tell you what's happened. Zelophehad has died. He's got daughters, no sons. 
And here come the daughters marching up to the tabernacle. They're coming to court. They're coming to the door of the house of the meeting, to the tabernacle, where Moses and the high priest and the elders of the nation hold court outside the tabernacle every day. And here come the daughters of Zelophehad. Verse 3. Here's what they said. Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among Korah's followers who banded against the Lord, but he died for his own sin and he left no sons. Now here's their argument. Our dad was a decent guy, just a normal guy. When Korah, that wicked man, rose up against Moses and God killed a bunch of people, our dad was not caught up in that. He was not against Moses. He was not with Korah. Our dad died for his old, own sins and his old age and whatever, okay? Four, but why should our father's name disappear from his clan because he had no son? Give us property among our father's relatives. Now, if you're just reading your Bible, you know, to get through, you know, Numbers chapter 27 in a day, you miss really the whole story that's here because you're just in such a hurry. Here comes five girls whose dad has died, and they come to the Supreme Court of Israel, and they say, there's an injustice happening, and we want our voices to be heard. Why is it that we cannot inherit our father's property? He was a good guy. He was a good citizen. And and here we are faced with a social injustice. Our dad fought side by side with his peers to come into the, to the, to the promised land, to, to be a part of Israel. He's been a faithful part of the nation. He, he contributed to the founding generation of the great Jewish society in the land of Canaan. He worshiped side by side with his neighbors. He paid his taxes. He supported the leadership of Moses, but he died. And now there are serious social justice issues aimed at we, his daughters, and other women like us. We're speaking not just for us, but for all the women of Israel right now. Listen, after uh, had died, his daughters in this culture would be treated like second-class citizens, beggars, outcasts. If you're a widow or you don't have a male heir, you, you just become like a whole different thing overnight in society. No one cares for you. You've got nothing to contribute. You, you've got nothing to add. You're not valued. And now it got this way because of broken models that come down to us from Adam and Eve and Noah and Abraham all the way. Broken marriage models and broken family models. And it just keeps mounting and mounting and mounting. Many times my peers say to me, well, Bobby, this is a social justice issue, and we're in the business of salvation, we're in the business of the gospel, <clears throat> our, our mission is spiritual. You know, I get that, and I say amen to that, but our mission is to share the gospel with human beings, and half of the population of the world is female, not male. Those human beings need to hear the gospel and feel valued as well. Uh, my issue is this. It's very hard to preach to people whose stomachs are growling. You say, well, it's a social justice issue. Yeah, but here's the amazing thing that Cornerstone has discovered. When we start an orphanage and we put food in their bellies and shoes on their feet, all of those kids suddenly find Jesus Christ as their Savior. 
Uh, they just sent me a dozen photos. I haven't shared them with you yet. They're just baptizing them like crazy. You say, why? Because you cared. You cared for them on the social side, and it opened the door for the spiritual side. Now, we started Global Effects and Discipleship Network as two other uh, uh, nonprofits that our church uh, owns and founded. And we started those because there are real social issues that need to be addressed. Listen, there, there are women trapped in trafficking and in prostitution against their will, and they need someone to advocate for them and, and see if they can deliver them and free them. And that is a dangerous work when you start messing with that. Dangerous work. It's expensive. It's dangerous. And you're involved in it. You're involved in the orphan business. We've started multiple schools. We've discovered that if you'll educate boys and girls together and, and treat them equally, that the girls are just smart as the boys. Ha, novel idea. They just needed access to an education. So what you'll notice about Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is he didn't just show up and say, get saved, get saved, believe on me, believe on me. He said, here, have your sight back. Here, have your hearing back. Here, let's break some loaves and fishes and feed these hungry people who are suffering out here in the heat with no food. Here, let's do things for people. And as he did things for people, it's amazing how the doors of their heart just opened up and the gospel came in and began to transform people's lives. What I want to say to Cornerstone is don't always separate the spiritual and the physical in this way. The social injustice issues are important. And Jesus advocated to correct social injustices when he was confronted with them. These women went right to Moses, and they made their argument right at the door of the house of God. And I'm so impressed with their courage to speak up and really demand that they be treated with equality and respect in the nation of Israel. And what you're going to find out is, uh, is sinful culture often collides with the Word of God. What we want to do is we want to influence our culture to restore the real models of marriage, the real love your neighbor as yourself, the real do unto others as you would have them do unto you, the real society that God wanted humanity and His created planet to be involved in. It's our business to be restoring that. So often, we as born-again Christians just say, well, this is the way the world is. Well, this is just the way it is. Well, that's just the system we have. We'll just step on everybody to get your way to the top. You've got to look out for yourself. If you don't know, one will. This is just the way the world is. Christians need to stop saying that's just the way the world is and say, how does God want the world to be? And however God wants the world to be, let, it come, let me be a part of the change. If you think God wants a, a, a healthy planet, be part of the solution. Is that fair? Listen, if you think God wants people treated with equality and respect on gender lines, then start practicing that. If you think God wants people of all races to be treated equally, by the way, I'm curious to know, you do believe that, right? Okay, that's cornerstone that I know. Then you personally, in your personal life, in your personal life, tomorrow at work, practice that. You in your social life, practice that. As you go off to the university, practice that, Caitlin. You just be who God wants you to be. The world you think God wants, you be that change. Now, 
you say, well, that kind of rubs against... Yeah, I know, it's not easy. It's not easy. Jesus did that. It wasn't easy for him either. And he called his people to do that. And it wasn't easy for them either. What we want to do is we want to influence our culture to restore the kingdom of God to our culture, to reverse the curse of sin wherever we can model that as God's image bears. Now, Moses is such a great leader. I love Moses for this. This is one of the most enlightening things about Moses that should endear you to him as a leader. Listen carefully these next few minutes. Moses may have made a lot of mistakes as a leader, but when it came to... Now, listen, he wasn't always a good husband. He wasn't always a good father. Some moments recorded in Scripture where you're like, oh, you're a little shaky right there. But right here, Moses shines as a hero of leadership. They brought their complaint to Moses. Watch what Moses does now. Moses models something for every one of us to follow. I know there are dozens of pastors listening around the world right now. If you're leading a congregation and you're hearing this message, please listen to what I'm about to say. When Moses was confronted with the daughters of Zelophehad and he heard their argument... Moses modeled something that we need to model as leaders of congregations. He listened to what the women in his congregation had to say. There's a start, right? Secondly, he took them seriously. Three, he did not dismiss their concerns. Four, he took the matter that they confronted him about and he went and prayed over the issue. And he asked God, God, I'm confronted with this. It looks like a social justice problem. God, what do you want me to do about the matter of these daughters, these women in Israel? And then he acted as an advocate for women's rights. Let me read it for you. Numbers 27, 5. So Moses brought the matter before the Lord. Now there's going to be many cases that you're going to discover where you go to seek God's mind on a thing, and he may give you an answer that runs counter to culture. Here is the context right here. So what will you do when you discover that God wants you to advocate for something that runs a little counter culture? Well, you obey God and try to deal with it as gracefully as you can. Numbers 27, verse 6, And the Lord said to Moses, What Zelophehad's daughters are saying is... What those daughters are saying is right... They are, say it, they're right. The women are right. The daughters have a legitimate gripe. Those five daughters are right. Why are you mistreating them? Why is Israel making this rule that discriminates against the daughters? Now, these aren't my words and these aren't Moses' words. I got quotation marks in my Bible. These are God's words. What the daughters are saying is right. You must certainly give them property as an inheritance among their father's relatives and give their father's inheritance to them. Say to the Israelites, if a man dies and leaves no son, give the inheritance to his daughter. Now that's pretty cool, isn't it? And pretty clear too. You say, well, I wonder what God thinks about equality. I think you're reading it right now. You say, yeah, but the culture was about primogenitor and and polygamy, and and patriarchal. That's the culture of this ancient time. God's blowing it up. God's saying, listen, it's not right, and you need to start making reforms in the culture. The daughters are right. Give them an inheritance. Their father was a faithful man, and he was a good Israelite. 
Why would you punish his children just because he only has daughters and not sons? And in that one moment, God contradicted centuries of discrimination against women owning property. In that one verse in your Bible, God has countermanded centuries of wrong practices that favored patriarchy and male leadership over the women. God is making it very clear in His Word that in His kingdom, women are not second-class citizens. They have equal value and all access to every benefit of being a child of God. When God looks at those who have been forgiven by faith in His Son through, through, through His work on, on the cross and through the resurrection, when God looks at those who have been forgiven, He doesn't limit the women from full participation in the advancement of His kingdom. He makes them partners in the advancement of His kingdom. And just as the daughters of Israel stood up for their birthright, I think it's time for all the daughters of God to understand who you are, how God views you, and what He has commissioned you to do in His kingdom. You say, well, those daughters were brave to stand up, and I know there's some brave people in this room too. And I'm asking every daughter of God to stand on equal footing with these daughters. You just stand up and claim your portion as God's daughter. Now, you say, well, gosh, I don't know what the leaders of my church think. Well, I'm one of the elders, and I'm, I've already spoken to the other elders, and I know how the elders and the staff of this church think. The elders of this church want every woman to stand up and say, we want a stake in this ministry. Our elders want you to stand up and say, please disciple me. Please give me a, an opportunity to be all that I can be for Christ. We want you to stand up, women, and say, we want to follow Jesus, and we're just, just show us the way, and we're ready to pursue Christ with everything we are and with all that we have. We want to be on the mission of Jesus Christ. You are the daughters of King Jesus. And you already know that he would give you the same share as any man from the Word of God. You are a daughter of Almighty God, and He has a plan for your future. You embrace and be everything He wants you to be. Now, sometimes the argument's like, well, the men just keep repressing the women. They shouldn't do that, bad, bad men. No, but sometimes the argument is the women are like it that way. Sometimes the argument is, well, we don't want to have to do ministry and get involved in the men. That's the man's business. We'll just sit back here in the background. We don't ever want to have to talk to people or engage in people or put our life out there or risk. So it cuts both ways. And I want to challenge the women. You, you, you stand up and be who God wants you to be. Claim your portion of God's ministry. Let me just say this to you. Uh, there are four, uh, the largest church in the world, South Korea, Seoul, South Korea. Uh, 800,000 is their membership right now. Um, they have uh, 50,000, roughly 50,000 discipleship groups. So stay with me now. 50,000 discipleship groups, 47,000 of those small groups are led by women. Now that's just a fact. You say, well, who's really setting the world on fire for the kingdom of God? It's a whole lot of women that are. And... I would love for every woman here in the future to be a disciple maker. That is our goal for you. If you join this church, 
Listen, there are other churches in the community that will let you be comfortable and kind of blend into the crowd and never have to, you know, you know, you know what I'm saying. This is not that church. This is a wonderful church, but it's a different kind of church. And in this church, as you come and put your membership here by covenant, we're going to disciple you because we believe this is what the Bible is teaching. Go and make disciples. And then we're going to ask you to one day disciple someone else and reproduce another Christian with your life. Listen, you know, it's a wonderful thing to bring children into the world. It's an equally wonderful thing to bring spiritual children up. If you've never had the joy of raising up spiritual children, and and I don't mean kids, I mean discipling another adult, and have them look to you as their spiritual leader, and you help them become mature, and then help them reproduce. Now, I don't have grandkids yet, and we're not in a hurry, Jack, take your time. (laughs) I don't have grandkids yet, but I hear through the grapevine from some of my older friends, like Craig and Tammy and Rick and Becky and these older people in the congregation, I, I hear that being a grandparent's a wonderful thing. I hear that it outshines parenthood. If that's true, now I haven't lived this yet, but Alan, if that is true, that grand, biologically being a grandparent outshines parenthood, then what would being a spiritual grandparent be like? When your disciples make disciples, and those disciples make disciples, a lot of y'all wonder maybe about Susan and what our joy is like. You know, Paul said, what is our joy and hope and crown of rejoicing are not even you in the presence of the Lord? As Paul said, you people, you Thessalonians, you are my joy. If you want to know what fuels Susan and, and, and I for the ministry, see, Jeremy and Erica are our disciples. Is there anybody here that was discipled by Erica? Is there anybody that was discipled by Jeremy? Yeah, back in the back there. You're our spiritual grandchildren. Trey, go make disciples, man. Investing in you every Sunday night when we meet for two hours upstairs on Sunday night. Trey, that's our delight because we know that you're going to make disciples. You're going to give us some great, great grandchildren. Praise God. You know, listen, we discipled Chris and Kristen. So when Chris and Kristen, when Chris is discipling Josh, who preached a few weeks ago, that's my spiritual grandchild preaching his first public sermon. Don't you think that's a win for all of us as a church? Now that's the mission around here, and that ties in beautifully with what we're doing in our dedication this morning. I, I, hear, the, I hear the voices of daughters saying, Father, please value me. Let me tell you a quick vignette. My, my time's running. Let me give you a quick vignette. Today we're reading from the historical books of the nation of Israel. Women and mothers in particular have always played a vital role. When Jeremy preaches on Deborah, that'll be very clear. Vital role in the nation of Israel. This next story is so important, this little vignette in your Bible, that it's told twice in the Bible. It's told, then a little bit later, it's repeated and told again. Both in Joshua 15 and in Judges chapter number 1. It's the story of Axol. Axol. Sounds like Hacksaw. Sounds like a big tough linebacker, doesn't it? But Axol is actually the daughter of Caleb. Joshua 15, 16 says this. And Caleb said, I will give my daughter Axol in marriage to the man who attacks and captures Kiriath-Sefer. Kerjath-Sefer in your old King James. Here's what happens. Joshua and Caleb are these two rough, tough, Viking kind of warriors. 
And all of those old heads died off because they didn't have courage to go in the promised land. And Joshua and Caleb are old, but they're tough as leather, man. They're it's like General Patton and, and, and General Pershing. Or, these are two tough warriors. And Caleb said, I'm going up there where the mountains are, where the giants live, and all I need is one man to watch my back. I, just, I don't want to go by myself. I, got, I mean, I can handle myself, no doubt. But I, if I need one more guy to watch my back, and we'll go up there as the dynamic duo. And I'll tell you what, you guys all know who my daughter is. And all the guys started salivating a little bit and panting, and she's evidently the real deal. And he said, if you'll go up and fight the giants with me, I'll give you my daughter's hand in marriage. Now, I know it's a little bit abhorrent to us for this arranged marriage and giving your daughter away like this, but what I want you to know in her case is she was given an arranged marriage, but she, it's normal in this culture, but she is very, very much loved. So I don't want you to read it in, in Axel's case as a negative thing. Uh, she is not a defenseless piece of property. She is very much loved by, by her dad. And what I learned about her very briefly is that like, she's what you would say is the whole package. Intelligent, bold, strong, courageous, independent, and so beautiful men would risk their lives to go into battle to win her hand and her heart in marriage. And... The young man did. He risked it all, went up with Caleb, and he and his new father-in-law uh, whipped the giants and secured the land for their family and won a great victory for Israel, and she was given to him in marriage. And when she was, she went to her husband, and she said, Husband, go talk to my dad and tell him, not only did, did you win my hand and my heart, but if he really loves his daughter and his new son-in-law and his future grandkids, he ought to give us some property. Again, in an era when women didn't get property. She said to her husband, my dad's a generous man. You go ask him, and for my sake, my dad will give us the property. And sure enough, he did. And a huge land grant was given to her and her husband from her daddy, Caleb. Land that he won in hand-to-hand, face-to-face, Viking combat with a sword and an axe. I mean, the, the real deal. He won every square inch of that ground in face-to-face combat, hard, blood-earned land. And when his daughter said, I'd like a nice big tract of land, dad gives her more than she expects to get a huge land grant. The Negev region of Israel was given to her and her new husband. She thought about that for a little bit. and She said, you know what? I'm going to go ask my dad for something else. I'm learning a lot now. This may be one of the best father-daughter relationships mentioned in the Old Testament. Daughter comes back to father again, Joshua 15, 18. One day while she came to Othniel, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And when she got off her donkey, Caleb said, what can I do for you? Daddy, you've been so generous to me and so loving toward me. Now, I want you to set me up for success. There's something I need. Well, I gave you the land. Yeah? But I'm not ready for success yet. I've got the land, but if you want me to be successful now, I need water. The Negev is very dry. If you want your daughter to to be able to do all that I can do, I need water to go with that land. Let me read it for you. She replied, verse 19, Do me a special favor, Dad, since you've given me the land in the Negev, Give me also springs of water. And of course, in regular, loving, Caleb, fatherly fashion, he gave her twice what she asked for. 
He gave her both the upper and the lower springs. Now, I just want to put this out there. This is beautiful behavior that models our Heavenly Father. Our Heavenly Father delights to give His children good things. Sometimes we go to God and say, Now, God, I know you're busy, and I know you've you know, you, know you got to pay the electric bill, and there's not much money left in your account. But God, if you could just spare a few dollars for me, I'm in this little bind down here, and I just need a little bit. I, don't even, I think we need to stop praying that way. And I think we need to start realizing that our God is God, and He can arrange anything, and He can do anything, and He owns everything. And start realizing that our Father, it's not like you have to beg Him, God, please, I wish you'd do something good for me. He delights to do good things for His children. Oh, Caleb's daughter didn't come crawling over glass with a downtrodden face. Say, I'm just pathetic and miserable. God, you just throw me a scrap. She's like, no, can I have half of Israel? Great, thanks. You know, I need some water now. Great, thanks, Dad. And now set me up for success. And you say, well, she's taking advantage. Not at all. Dad loves her incredibly. And Dad would give her anything she asks for within reason. And he does. And he's very gen- generous. And, and I know that I'm speaking to Christians here this morning Every godly father hearing my voice wants to empower his daughter to succeed. And if you don't, these altars are here in a minute to repent. You should want your daughters to succeed. Now, you boys, just hang tight. You're loved. You get all the attention all the time. Don't feel like you're dismissed in these weeks. Uh, But I want to say especially, we want to set our daughter. I don't have a daughter physically, biologically. But I've got a lot of spiritual ones. And we want to set you up to succeed in the kingdom of God. We want to give you every opportunity to learn, every opportunity to grow, every opportunity to achieve. Caleb's daughter basically just said to her dad, Dad, don't give me the desert without giving me the water to make it a beautiful orchard. Dad, if you're going to give me this, then set me, don't let me fail, Dad. Don't let me fail. Let me and my husband succeed and be blessed and flourish and be fruitful and that's what the elders of this church are saying to to the daughters of our church succeed flourish be fruitful take ownership of the ministry we want you to succeed on the mission of christ now we have 35 women small group leaders here 35 disciple leaders now i think they're discipling right now there's one or two one in most groups some have a, a second I think there's 37 to 40 women in discipleship right now being discipled by about 35. Listen, if you guys will stay with your discipleship in another year or two, we'll have 70 small group leaders. And if you guys will stay with that for another year, you see what's about to happen. The future of our church is in your hands. If Cornerstone doesn't make disciples in the coming generation, don't blame it on bad preaching. I'll resent that. I'm going to blame it on disciple makers not making disciples who've been empowered to do so. You take ownership of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so Caleb's a super generous guy, gives to his daughter, sets her up for success, and that leads us to the last vignette. This morning, I want you to realize you're in the community of the blessed here this morning. As men and women, we are so richly blessed to be called God's children. There's one little vignette in the book of Job. Uh, Job is one of the oldest books in your Bible. Job uh, had calamity, and he lost all ten of his children through a storm when it destroyed his child. They were were like together for a family event. Just imagine, you get this, you live in North Texas. Imagine it's Mother's Day and a tornado hits your house, 
and it wiped out, it killed all of his sons and daughters, killed all of his children. They were all in the one house together. And yet Job remained faithful, and his famous line there in the book of Job is, though God slay me, yet will I serve him. And Job remained faithful, and he did his best not to get bitter and angry, and he tried to live his life and move forward. His health went south, and you know, uh, that's understandable. A lot of things happened to Job, but ultimately in the end, God reversed everything and restored his fortunes, restored his family. God blessed him with ten more children, seven sons, and three daughters. When the Bible concludes the book of Job, it tells you this about his family. Job 45, 15. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters. Whenever the Bible brings somebody's beauty into the story, there's always, it's always there for a reason. I don't have time to elaborate all of this, but it's always there for a reason. It's telling you something very profound. There were no women in the entire land more beautiful than the daughters of Job. And their father granted them an inheritance with their brothers. Listen, if you're just doing your daily Bible reading and you read that, you'd say, good deal, let's go you know, to Chick-fil-A and move on with our day. No, when he gave them an inheritance with their brothers, that went against the culture. That was, that was revolutionary. God restored children to him and gave his family a family tree that would continue. And he divided his estate among his children, both the boys and the girls, both the men and the women. And God said, and they're beautiful and they're blessed and they're treated as equals. Many believe that the Holy Spirit puts these details in the Bible because they build on part of the story. Surely God is revealing his heart for women and many believe that the book of Job was written to show us how God restores everything in the end. There's a thing about this. We go through smart, but God ultimately makes you win in the end. All things work together for good that love him. You know it's going to turn out right for you ultimately, even if that's the day of resurrection. Ultimately, things work out because God is in control. You know, it's very hard to believe in fairy tales if you're not a believer. If you live in this world, you'll grow to be a cynic without Christ. But I believe that the story of God's people ends and they lived happily ever after, dot, dot, dot. And I believe in the fairy tale ending because I believe in God who makes things right and restores all things. When Jesus went to the cross... He purchased our redemption and he paid for our sins and he opened up a way for us to have new life in Jesus Christ. Restored as images, living images of God. Restored to a divine vocation. And in doing so, he broke the power of guilt and the power of shame and the power of death and the power of sin and the power of oppression. Remember what Jesus' sermon words were. The Lord has sent me to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And Christ has made us beautiful once again. Christ has promised us equal inheritance in the kingdom of God. Perhaps your self-image has been marred. Perhaps your self-image has been damaged by the results of living in a sinful world. It's easy for that to happen. Your self-image gets beat up and dinged up and many suffer. Uh, many suffer because of, of verbal abuse, 
domestic violence, sexual abuse, discrimination. I mean, the list goes on and on of things that so damage us that our self-image becomes broken and we don't really see who we are as God sees us. Don't, don't let your past prevent you from gaining a beautiful life and an eternal inheritance. Don't, don't let your past constantly speak to you and say, no, you've got this. No, we've got this baggage. No, we've got this hurt. No, we've got this pain. God's people have to become masters at jettisoning, jettisoning baggage. You say, what does it mean to be a God's child? Learn to let go of things. Learn to move on and let Christ heal wounds. Learn to be transformed. Lean upon God's spirit and let him remake your thinking. That's just the way I am. Well, the way you are is cruddy. Let God remake you into something better. (laughs) There's a better version of you waiting to be had. Just yield to the Holy Spirit and let him transform you. You say, well, I just always have been short-tempered. Well, stop it. Give that to Jesus and let him do something different with you. You say, well, I've always just been fill-in-the-blank. Listen, whatever your fill-in-the-blank is this morning, I wish you'd just put that on the altar today and say, God, this is how I see myself, but I want to start seeing myself as you see me. As I told you last week, there's three people there. The person you are, the person you could be if you yielded to the Holy Spirit, and the person you'll become if you walk away from Jesus Christ. Be the person yielded to the Spirit of God. If you're here without Christ this morning, just know that Jesus can remove the dirty rags of our sin and he can clothe you with the robes of righteousness that are provided by Jesus Christ. And regardless of your past, God has a glorious future planned for you. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Let's have a moment of decision right before we address these uh, children that are going to be dedicated this morning. If you're dedicating your child, I want you to just go ahead and slip out and let let grandparents make some decisions and focus on what we're doing. I think every, every believer here this morning should just in your heart on this Mother's Day 2022 should just be challenged and should say to God this morning, God, I, I'm ready to follow you. God, I'm ready to get on your mission. I see that male leadership is not holding me back. I need to stop holding myself back. And I need to move forward and be your daughter in the kingdom of God. Young men, I I really talk to the women, but young men, with your heads bowed and your heart bowed before the Lord, whether you're a teenage boy or a 20 or 30 year old husband don't let the women do all the leading now I'm charging them to rise up and be claim their birthright and their inheritance in Christ what I'm really saying is can husband and wife come side by side hand in hand, arm in arm Can we put our arms around our teenage sons and daughters and as a family worship God together? It's not about men leading or women leading. It's about all of us being 
what God wants us to be. Maybe you're timid and you've just been kind of living back in the shadow a little bit. Why don't you tell God this morning, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I don't need to know what it is right now. Yes, it's my answer. I present to you all that I am. My heart, my mind, my body, my hands, my mouth, my feet. Lord, I'm yours. It is your son or your daughter this morning. I rededicate myself to you fresh. Lord, I will be discipled. I'll connect. For those of you who are already mature Christians, I will disciple. I will engage in the mission, Lord. For those of you who know some serious change needs to be happening in your life, your marriage, your parenting style, your attitude, your heart, why don't you say to the Lord right now, Lord, this area of my life I give to you. I need help being a better husband. I need help being a better wife. Lord, I need help knowing how to parent these children. God, bring people into my life that can show me how to be all that you want me to be. Women, while you're rededicating your life to Christ right now, I want to just speak to anyone that might be here without Christ. If you don't know him as your Lord and Savior, in this moment, I just want you to call out to him in faith and express your belief in Him and ask Him for forgiveness of your sins, your faith in Christ will save you today. Not my words, but I can help you with words if you need help. If you've never received Christ, pray pray like this. Dear, dear Jesus, I confess to you this morning that I'm a sinner. I can't save myself, and I need a Savior. I need help. I need someone who can forgive my sins and save me, and I know you are that person. Jesus, I believe you're God's son who came to this world and died for me and rose again to be my Savior. I believe you are the rightful king. And this morning, I want to ask you to forgive me of my sins. Wash me. Cleanse me. Adopt me into your family right now because from this moment on, you are the Lord and the King of my life. I receive you as my King and my Savior right now. My life is yours. Wash me and cleanse me. Fill me with your Spirit today. This is my heart cry to you, God. In Jesus' name.